this past week, uh, former Senator Jim DeMint was being interviewed for a new book that he has written called Satan, titled Satan's Dare. Satan's Dare. In this book, Mr. DeMint states that the Western civilization is in decline because the Christian church is in decline. The church is in decline because it has become unmoored from the truth, following the culture instead of leading it. This is the basic theme of Mr. DeMint's book. Tied to this theme is another quote from his book, which states, Truth is the core principle of Judeo-Christian values, which are the foundation of Western civilization. I was asking myself as I read this, where did he get this perspective from? Could it be in the law of God, the ninth command, that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Could it be that Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, anything beyond that is from the evil one, is from Satan, meaning it is a deception. If you go beyond what you can do, what you can accomplish, what you know can, you can carry through, then it is a deception. It is a lie. And there are many other passages in Scripture that focus on the importance of being true and honest and its connection to wisdom even from God. So DeMint continues, he says, Judeo-Christian values are derived from the Bible and the Christian church is the only custodian of the Bible. If you want to know the reason for the death of truth in America, look no further than the decline of Bible-based Christianity. So I was considering that. I was thinking about how he is echoing Augustine's statement that all truth is God's truth. If it is true, it belongs to God because all truth is God's truth. So as we look at the church of Pergamon today, you see that there are some who are struggling with compromise, wanting to hold to the things of this world and yet also wanting to hold to God and to his teaching and to the fellowship of Christ. But Jesus has already told us that you cannot both serve God and mammon. You cannot both serve this world and serve God. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There is no other way. There's no other way. You, You can't have... Two masters, one you will be devoted to you, and the other you will not. Oftentimes the masters that we think about is us being the master and God. If you are devoted to yourself as your own God, you're not going to love God. You're going to love yourself. Your focus is going to be on yourself. It's about preserving self. It's about promoting self. There's no devotion towards God. All the devotion is towards yourself. Do we not see this today? Do we not see it even in the church today? 
Mammon refers to the evil influence. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, mammon refers to the evil influence that wealth and power can impose upon you in the form of covetousness or even greed. Whether through advertising of products or imposition of vaccines or other means, consider how this applies to our day in our own country as we should want this. You must have this. This is what it means to be successful. This is how you must live. This encouraged desire for the things of this world draws us away from God, away from his truth. Certain things we obviously need in this world, but we should not hunger for that which opposes the will of God. Let's look at God's word regarding the church of Pergamon. Revelation 2 Verses 12 through 17. Re- Revelation two twelve through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is God's Word. Princeton Seminary Professor Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, otherwise known as B.B. Warfield, who taught theology at Princeton Seminary over 100 years ago, made this bold statement. He said, If everything that is called Christianity in these days is Christianity, then there is no such thing as Christianity. A name applied indiscriminately to everything designates nothing. Let me present that again. That is important. If everything that is called Christianity in these days is Christianity, then there is no such thing as Christianity. A name applied indiscriminately to everything designates nothing. Yes, that was a hundred or so years ago that that statement was made. I think there are non-Christians who understand this statement from Warfield very well. I look at the comment sections sometimes on the internet to depress me. (laughs) And I ran across uh, in the comment section one who made it clear that they were not a Christian and they made this statement. People have grown so used to the staggering number of Christian denominations. 
they rarely stop to consider how utterly bizarre it is to worship a God who could wheel the universe into existence but can't get his story straight. Did you hear that? I would encourage this person to see the statement of B.B. Warfield and understand that what we believe about what is true does not change what is true. What we believe about what is true does not change the truth. Yes, when people call themselves Christians and they are adrift, they become unmoored from the truth of God's Word by embracing the values of the world. The Christianity that the world sees is a group of sanctimonious people who can't get their story straight. This in turn harms the witness of the true gospel when you become unmoored from the truth and think any way you dream up is the way to God through Christ. When Jesus made it very clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. So how do we unmoor ourselves from God's truth? How does this happen? We compromise. We compromise with the world. This is not saying that we shouldn't love the world or, or that we shouldn't interact in the world. This is not saying that we should go to some monastery isolated on some island and, and live unto ourselves. No, that's not what this is talking about. It, it's talking about compromise. Uh, I remember when Pastor Barnes was, was uh, a pastor at, at Covenant in Pella, he used to talk about baptizing the culture. This type of compromise is when we start saying that even though these things are sinful, even though these things are pagan and evil in the eyes of God, they appeal to us and we want them in our repertoire. We want to participate in this. And so we take what is evil and we start calling it good. This is not the pagan culture. This is the Christian culture who is compromising with the pagan culture, with the pagan world. We want to adopt something. We, or, or maybe we want to be liked by the culture. And if we, if we don't agree with this value that the culture promotes, then the culture won't like us. They'll ostracize us. They'll call us names. They'll put us on the outside. And we don't want to be rejected. We, we want to be embraced. We, we want to be relevant. And so we, we adopt this value. As a pagan culture puts pressure on you to conform to its ideals and ways, you will either yield to that pressure or you will seek renewed strength from God to stand firm to stand fast in Christ. That is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed by the pressure this fallen world places upon you, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word transformed there means to change inwardly regarding your fundamental character or condition. Renewal refers to causing something to be new and different, superior to what it was before. This is all a picture and image of sanctification. 
Whereas we repent and turn from our sinful ways to Christ over and over again and we ask Him to put to death the sin in our lives that harms our relationship with Him and with others, God replaces it with His love, with His truth, with His life. And we grow in grace. We grow in our understanding of who God is and we grow in our fellowship with one another. This is the renewal that we need. The pressure is always to conform. I think of the image on one hand of of Christ's life, his ministry in this world. When you think of the, the desire of Satan to compress us, to conform us into his image and, and to basically press us into the ground, into this world. When Jesus was born into this world, Satan tried to destroy his life right off the bat. Remember two years in as the wise men went in and, and they told Herod about this new king of Israel that was born to the Jews. And Herod wanted to know where he was at and they didn't tell him. And so he knew that he was in Nazareth so he, or in, in uh, Jerusalem. So he sent his soldiers over there to, to destroy every male child two years and under. From the very beginning, Satan was trying to destroy the life of Christ. He continually put pressure against Christ with temptation after temptation. Confrontations through those people who claimed to be righteous and and religious stewards of God's word who were actually uh, uh, servants of the enemy, children of the devil who would challenge Jesus over and over and over again. And finally, they put Him on a cross. They crucified Him as He took upon Himself our sin. And He died and He was buried. And that is the picture on one hand of conformity, of Satan just pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing until you're in the grave. And all that you've worked for, all that you love, the children that you had, uh, the, the life that you had, everything that God has given you is, is buried in this world. On the other side, what do you see? You see the resurrection. This is the renewal of the mind. This is the renewal of life. When we, when we look at that word renewal, it's, it, it's akin to being born again, to being made new. And you see this life of Christ. And on one side, He took upon our sin and was buried into the grave. Buried into this world, it seemed like Satan had won. But on the other side, He's resurrected from the grave. He, is, he, he, he rises up and He overcomes the power of sin, death, and the devil. This is the new life that Paul is talking about. This is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that needs to flood your mind, that needs to flood your soul that you need to draw from each and every day because it is this new life that's going to improve your understanding of who God is. It's going to strengthen your relationship with Christ and with one another. It's going to give you the grace and power to overcome the temptations and, 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 and threats and, and challenges of this world, of this life. You think about bearing it, all of it in the world. I was... Immediately think of God's servant Job. Have you seen God's servant Job? All the things that God had given him, Satan was just burying it in the ground. 
putting to death his his children, taking away his wealth, destroying his dignity, all of it just pressing it into the ground, even his health, his life. So he had nothing left. And yet on the backside of Job, what happens? God restores him. He renews him. And that is a picture of life beyond this world. Yes, you can have a wonderful life, as some of these televangelists say. You can have a wonderful life now. You know, if, if, your, if your desire is to get rich, if your desire is, is, to, is to be healthy, and that's, that's your goal, it's not to follow Christ Jesus, it's not to honor God, it's just simply to fulfill the desires and passions of yourself, of your sinful heart. You can have that wonderful life now, but it will be now. What Christ Jesus offers to His people, those who struggle, those who suffer, and those who who sacrifice because they're following Him, He offers life beyond the grave. Life that is eternal. Life that is everlasting. Eternal peace with God through Christ Jesus. what Jesus is talking about with the manna. To those who overcome, I will give hidden manna. That hidden manna means this is the living Word of Christ offered to His people. The world doesn't see it because the world doesn't know Him. They don't see the life in His Word. They think that what you're hearing and what you're receiving is nonsense. True life comes through food, actual physical bread, stuff that we can prove exists. This manna that you're speaking of, what is that? Spiritual? It's a fantasy. They can't see it. They don't understand it. But you know it. Because you know how Jesus nourishes your heart and your mind. You can have the worst day possible. And say one little prayer to Jesus. And Jesus lifts you up. Your strength didn't come from physical bread. Or physical food. It came from the spirit. You know this manna. As you put your faith in Jesus. And this manna. This bread from heaven. Is what's going to sustain you. Not just in this life. But forever as it is life from the Spirit. The other thing Jesus says, He talks about a stone, a white stone. This white stone has your name on it. Joe Stoll states, in the ancient world, invitations to major festivities and events by the emperor were engraved on a white piece of marble and your name would be engraved on that marble as an invitation to come and when you entered the festivities you would present your invitation to this of, on this white piece of marble that had your name on it so he says think of these believers who were excluded from the festivities hearing that ultimately Jesus will invite them to his feast think about that Jesus lays out the battle. That's clear to us. 
he says that this is, is Satan's throne. You, you live where Satan's throne is. You live where Satan lives, where he's active, where he has power and influence, where he is making your life absolutely miserable through persecution, through exclusion. If you're a Christian, you are excluded. That's why some people were compromising. Some people were struggling in the church. They, didn't, they did not want to be excluded from society. They were succumbing to the pressures that were being placed upon them, that you either conform or you're out. You either conform to our ways or you don't receive. It's almost the idea of you don't buy or sell unless you have our mark, unless you do what we say, unless you, you, you carry out your business according to what we think is right. You don't partake in, in, in this society, in this community, unless you follow our laws and our guidelines. And our, lies are, our laws are revealed clearly through what we believe regarding the pantheon. You have all kinds of temples and all kinds of gods there. You have the god of Zeus or the temple of Zeus, uh, who is the, the king of the gods, Dionysus, who is the god of mischief and revelry, uh, Demeter, who was over food and crops, As, Asclepion, who was the god of healing in their, idea, in, in their, in their sight. Uh, they had uh, Athena, who was a goddess of wisdom, and Trajan, who was an emperor representing the imperial cult of Caesar. You had all these temples with all these pagan gods and all the people who worshipped them. That was the ruling class within the community. And if you didn't play by their rules, you didn't partake. So they were probably impoverished as well. They were struggling as well. And some people were giving in. Again, we talk about baptizing the culture. And when you look at Jesus, when he appears, he talks about the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That double-edged sword cuts two ways. It cuts against the, the, the sinful rebellion of this world in, in, the, in the manner of judgment. It will be the word of, of Christ that judges the nations, that judges the world, uh, those who stand against him. But it also cuts uh, more like a scalpel it cuts against the sinful rebellion in our hearts. Cutting away that which is against God so that we might be in fellowship with God. Removing that which is harmful. There's not a one of us here who if we knew we had cancer and it could be cut away, would go to a doctor and have him cut it away immediately. If it means that we would be healthy and that we would be alive down the road. It's not a one of us here who wouldn't do that. And yet, why do we struggle coming before our Heavenly Father, coming before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in repentance, asking Him to remove this sin in our lives that is so harmful to our relationship with Him and with one another? Why do we struggle with that? Christ calls upon us to repent to repent. There's a scene that he highlights. And if you have your Bibles open, you can turn in your Old Testaments to Numbers 25. This is verses 1 through 3. In verse 14, uh, the risen Christ Jesus says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to the idols and by committing sexual immorality. This is tied directly to the Nicolaitans who promote the same idea. It's a Gnostic sect which believes that the flesh is sinful, but the spirit is divine or or the spirit is what is good and you can do anything to the flesh. Uh, You can partake in anything with the flesh as long as you preserve the spirit. And it's, it's a fallacy, but that's what they believed. And it ties into what's going on here. Verse 14, the risen Christ Jesus says, You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. What is he saying there? Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3 state, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of, to their gods. The people ate food sacrificed to idols in the act of worship and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Israelites were indulging in pagan rituals of the Moabites, worshiping the false god of Baal Peor instead of the living god, Jehovah. And God was angered, and he had 24,000 of them who indulged in these immoral practices put to death. That's how serious this is. How many churches today are participating in immoral practices in our culture and in our world? How many people who call themselves Christian are participating in these immoral acts, calling themselves Christians when they're not following Christ, but they're following the ways of this world? I'm not talking about when we struggle with sin and we are repentant before the Lord. I'm talking about when we are simply devoted to the values, the pagan values of this world, even though we are claiming the name of Christ. How many of us are doing this? How many don't want to deal with sin? Some churches don't want to preach about hell, the judgment of God. Let's not do that. We'll we'll run people right out of the church. Let's not talk about suffering either. People have enough trouble in their plates. People don't want to hear about suffering. They want to hear about how to become healthy and wealthy and happy. Tell them how to do that. Suffering, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. In Jim DeMint's book, he tells of his wife listening to an Easter sermon. He and his wife one morning after describing the miraculous and incredible resurrection of Jesus, the pastor concluded it didn't matter if it was actually true, only that we believed it was true. Do you hear that? What do we believe? What do we hold on to in this life? Jesus tells us to repent. Let me lay it out this way. I know the struggles of my own heart. I recognize how powerful sin is, how powerful pride is. Uh, 
How easy it is to justify myself when I know that I'm doing something wrong. It's not hard at all. I have an inner lawyer, a little defense attorney that comes out. He will justify me to the nth degree. But I better not do that before God in prayer. I shouldn't do that in reality either. But that's how we're wired. We're wired to justify ourselves instead of repent. I have a little fishing boat. It's about 14 feet long. And a few years ago, I was in a hurry to get out on the lake and and go fishing. I only had like an hour and a half, two hours to do so. So I wanted to try my hand and see if I could catch some fish. It was a slightly windy day, probably a 10 to 15 mile hour breeze, uh, enough to blow the boat around. I was in a hurry, and as I backed in my boat, I thought I tied it to the to the dock pretty securely. But there was something in the back of my mind as I was pulling my my tr- my truck and trailer to the parking lot. Just I was only up a little ways. Something nagging in the back of my mind said, turn around and look. And as I looked, my boat was drifting away from the dock. And I could see that the rope was not tethered. It was not tied to the side of the dock. I slam on the brakes, put the car in park, jump out of my car, run down there as fast as I can. And as I'm running down, I fall down on the side of the dock just to reach the last end of the rope that was just disappearing into the water as my boat was about 10 to 12 feet away. Yeah, I could have swam, but I'm glad that I could hang on to the rope. But that time around when I grabbed that rope, that boat was right next to the dock, wound several times around the post, and then tied with about three knots. (laughs) You'd have to cut it loose instead of untie it. I wanted to make sure that it was secured. Repentance is like that. Why, why do I need to repent? So that we can secure our walk with the Lord. God gives us the grace to do this. God gives us the wisdom and counsel to do this. God's Spirit is the one who leads and directs us. But on our, hand, on our side, we need to receive it. We need to, we need to re- secure it. We need to walk by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. We need to secure that faith. Cling to Christ, no matter what, so that we don't drift away from Him. The pressures of this life, the pressures of a fallen society, of a sinful society, are always trying to move you away from God. Always, each and every day. Putting pressure on you to to separate you from God. By faith, you need to make sure that that relationship is secure. And the way you secure that relationship is you constantly go back day by day and you see where the separation is taking place and you seek the Lord's power to secure that up and you fasten it tight by faith, by clinging to Christ Jesus. That is our mission. That's how we maintain. That's how we continue in faithfulness. To Christ. You know this church? A few more generations and it was gone. You know why? They kept compromising. They kept compromising with the world. And eventually they were gone. Eventually the one who was fighting for them stood against them. 
and they were no more. For us as God's people, if we want to remain faithful and to see that faithful faithfulness passed on from generation to generation, we need to make sure that we walk by faith, that we secure that faith. And the way that we secure our faith is through repentance. Repentance.